hello yet again. My name is Jeff Watson, and you are listening to the Inspired Minds Podcast. Very grateful that my family put me in musical theater solely because I could speak to the back of the room, project to the back of the room, not that that's needed on a podcast. Great intro. So I have been having so much fun doing a lot of this with my friend Michael Lee Simpson, who's the guy that gets everything and gets the people that I'm talking to. And um, he's just a great dude. I've known him for a long time. So this is nice. Little shout out to my, my boy. But it has been, it's been so much fun. I, I've been interviewing so many different people from so many walks of life, not just Hollywood, um, but just all kinds of people. Um, and this next one is that different walk of life. And her name is Marlo uh, Gelman, and what a fantastic, I always say this, what a fantastic interview. I highly doubt I'll ever say that was kind of shitty, but it, it really was great. Um, and she is a, she's brilliant. Um, she's into uh, neurobiology. Um, I had another <laughs> kind of neurobiology person about two episodes ago. I hope this is a theme. I love this kind of stuff. She taught me so much about like behavioral therapeutics and all these different modalities, but she's super funny too. So it's not boring talk about therapy crap. Um, I'll leave it up to you. Oh, anyway, um, I think that's it. I'm still kind of recovering from COVID. If you heard the last episode, I'm fine. I'm just brain foggy. Um, but as always, I hope you like this as much as I did listening to it and having a conversation. So talk to you guys later. Okay, and here we are. This is with Marlo Gelman. Marlo, say hello. Hello. I'm glad to be here. This is exciting. Wonderful to talk to you. Um, as I mentioned, uh, kind of at the top of this thing, uh, you are a behavioral therapy practice and research expert with over 15 years of experience. You got a lot of stuff going on. I do. I do. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and as you know, you and I had talked obviously uh, kind of before this so a couple of days ago, so you know a little bit about what this is about. But this podcast is mostly about uh, creativity and inspiration, and it's been really fun. I have to say because originally. We've been, uh, been fortunate and enough to interview a lot of people in the typical quote-unquote creative world, like Hollywood people, and I've done interviews with uh, editors of Star Wars and writers and big movies and all these things. And where this is kind of now heading is people like you. And it's kind of opened up to creativity in general. And as we discussed earlier, I am a uh, burgeoning therapist, and I'm utterly fascinated by the intersection of creativity and therapy and mm -hmm. neuroscience and, and all those worlds. But to kick this whole thing off, what I like to always do is ask a fun little question, hopefully, and that is, Marlo, what yeah. was the first thing, person, movie, book that you remember reading, watching, meeting that inspired you when you were younger? You know, I have, it, it's sort of a, a bittersweet story, but um, I did not grow up with a mentor. I did not grow up wanting to emulate any idea or any individual historical or present in my life. I never had any 
guidance in, um, in, in, in terms of inspiration. I wish I had a fabulous story to tell about some third grade teacher that saw some sort of, you know, incredible gift to me. And I, I didn't have that. It was, it was, I was like a little, a little lone wolf wandering through, to, wandering through life. <laughs> and, and, um, no, it's true. I, um, uh, yeah, I, I, and, and that's, that, that's the truth. And so I, I suppose my inspiration came from within and through self-discovery. And I, I really do believe that I was unusually introspective as an adolescent. And um, that is where I drew my inspiration from, was from my curiosity and my, my need. I needed it. It was like food for me to learn about all things, spiritual and how did, all things. Yeah. I mean, yeah. How did that express itself? Like, were you into the cure or were you into poetry or were you into Oscar Wilde? Yeah, oh, 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 and oh gosh, it started off in, in my adolescence. I would take the, the train downtown with my little notebook and I, you know, would have my pocket money and I would buy, you know, a, a cup of tea or, you know, um, and I would nurse that for hours and I would sit outside and I would watch people. I, of course, I was in the most, you know, the craziest, most wild place in the, you know, street on the city. So I could watch all these creative and fascinating, wild Ooh. human beings. And I would, I remember reading Edgar Allan Poe and I would, you know, I would, uh, I found these, some books that my parents only really had as, the core, um, but they were interesting um, books, and one in particular was a, a brief history of religions, and I thought that was fascinating because I think as humans we're always seeking, at least I think that most human beings are always seeking, and certainly at some point in life, oftentimes at the end of life, do we mm -hmm. then start to seek out some kind of sense, some kind of place. And, and purpose. So um, I got a hold of this, and I was reading about Taoism, and um, you know, it was Zoroastrianism, and different sects of Christianity, and just all these things. And, and that's what I would do. I would sit outside at these coffee shops and nurse my tea, and then I would write these little prose. And I was a horrible student, so it was not like <laughs> I was this great writer. My punctuation was horrible, my grammar, and it still is. Um, but that's what I would do. I would just write these little prose and then I would read and I was, I spent a lot of time alone and mm -hmm. that made me happy. Mm -hmm. And so I suppose, um, my curiosity for life and my thirst for knowledge was my inspiration for everything I do. Interesting. So you were basically reading, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm getting this visual on my head correctly, you were, uh, what city were you talking about? New York? No, this was uh, this was in Los Angeles. Oh, LA. Yeah. Where, what part? Uh, what, yeah. What, what street is here? Um, it, you know, at that point, it was uh, Hollywood Boulevard, and Hollywood. it was very yeah. different back then. And yeah. I started to spend time alone at fifteen. Ah. And then, I, but prior to that, I was living in Vancouver, um, where I was born, and um, that started at fourteen. I started to go downtown. Yeah, on the train. Interesting. Yeah. And you were mm -hmm. you were an only child? Is that right? Uh, um, no, I have a, an older uh, sibling. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was just, yeah. I was just yeah. trying to 
try to genogram all this. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that was but, so yeah. That's, that's amazing. And the reason I ask is I think it's fascinating that you found your inspiration from a different angle, right? Because most people, like myself, let's say, at the age of 15, were listening to, in my particular case, I was an, I'm an ex-Goth, I'm an OG, old original Goth kid. So, you know, I was listening to The Cure and I was listening to The Smiths and Oh, so was I. Oh, so was I. That was my jam. Oh, yes. The pick. Yeah, the Pixies and yes, oh. and yeah. Oh, the Violent Femmes and oh, oh yeah, oh yeah. That was me. That was me in the nineties. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Total side note, by the way, I met Johnny Marr, and he's like the greatest human being in the entire world, and I freaked out oh. when I met him. That is not. I relevant. love that. He was, <laughs> he was incredible. I, but, but that's oh, wow. Oh, that's yeah. That was my that was my jam too. Yep. Well, there you go. And <laughs> so. It's interesting because, again, the fact that you were like, what, 15 and you were doing comparative religion to find creativity, I think that's fascinating. Yes, and then, uh, yeah, and then like reading Frederick Nietzsche is not even knowing oh. what politics and what these so ideologies and, uh, oh, it's just, yeah, I was, uh, yeah, I, you know, that was me. <laughs> and it still so is me. I'm still the same person. So, well, right, exactly. So walk me through 15 years old, sitting on Hollywood Boulevard watching the freak show to where you are now. Walk me through that process. Oh, my goodness. I think I, yeah. bat- I struggled with conventionality. I think that because my, um, my growing up was so, I mean, it wasn't traumatic. I, you know, I'm, well, I mean, I, I mean, we all have moments, but, um, uh, you know, it was just so uncertain. And the expectations that were placed on me by my parents were so detached from who I was. And I think as I think that's quite common though in adolescence, but um, so I did. I, I think that, well, I know there was a part of my early twenties, maybe nineteen twenty, where I really needed some kind of structure um, that was hmm, not abstract, that wasn't within my mind, but some kind of like literal white picket fence, you know, some kind of, I needed to have this conventional life. I thought I needed to have the Volvo with the golden retriever. <laughs> it, it just, no, yeah. It just made me yeah. feel, I thought I needed that at that point in my life. And I really romanticized the notion of having this picturesque, very, very simple, very safe life. And at that point, um, I was a student and I was also doing involved in the entertainment industry. I was doing a lot of acting, which was hysterical. I always thought it was so funny and, and so silly. Um, I did not, you know, I didn't, I didn't really take it seriously, but I made money doing it. And, and I, I mean, I could have gone at that point, I could have gone either way. I could have gone into television film, which made me nauseated. So of course my love for science just was, was my love for science and, 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 and my mind was, yeah, it, I wasn't, yeah, I wouldn't, I would not have survived that industry. So mm. I wound up meeting a very nice guy who is a very logical thinker, the polar, polar opposite of me, very left hemisphere, very logical, um, very um, safe, uh, feared the unknown. Um, uncertainty to him was something that he would not 
touch with a 10 foot pole and he came from a stable family and um, his, you know, his family still lives in a small town and everybody has barbecues. And so I thought, Mm -hmm. wow, that's really appealing. Yeah. I'm going to sign up for that. So, (laughs) and I wanted to be a mom. And so I married, I married him And, um, and of course, you know, it's like watching a train, like train wreck in slow motion. I'm sure every single person at that wedding thought this is just bizarre. <laughs> this, right. The, the partnership, but you know, stranger things have happened. So we were married for 11 years and then, wow. yep. Yeah, I, I gave it the old college go. I really did. But I realized I spent, you know, over a decade of my life, I, I did have my babies, my beautiful babies who are now 20 and 18 and 15. Um, with, thank you with him. Um, and, it, you know, it was I, I did have a splash of crazy, though, in my marriage, which really was the most beautiful thing. And is that my um, my 18 year old, um, he um, was the youngest child to be diagnosed with autism in North America. It was the day after he turned two. Yeah. And so at this point, now we, now we diagnose, um, um, we can even start to speculate around 18 months if an individual is going to fall on the spectrum and where they fall is contingent on a whole other slew of, of, of things. But, um, yeah, so he was, very difficult and crazy. And I loved it. And who better to parent this wild child than me who had an undergrad degree in psychology. Mm -hmm. And I also decided when he was um, three to go and do my master's in behavioral neuroscience. And that's what I did. And, uh, yeah, and then I wound up with divorcing and then, uh, you know, finding my way and with the kids and, you know, and then here I am. Yep, and I worked as a behavioral therapist for school boards and all sorts of exciting things. And um, and, and then uh, I really came into my own and decided to make a leap and start my own practice. And, you know, there is a tremendous amount of risk involved in doing that, making that transition. And particularly, as I do have, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm ADHD, and so I didn't prepare myself for the exodus from, <laughs> right, from working Monday to Friday, 9 to 5. I just did it. I just decided I was going to do it. And then I realized, oh, my gosh, I have got children to feed. What am I going to do? And so being in that stressful, putting myself in that stressful situation forced me to become very creative in a different way. I had to become more resourceful and create my own opportunities and really honor them and really commit. And, uh, and man, that it was, it was difficult, but it was such a blessing. I, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have changed the way I transitioned into, you know, my own practice for anything. And here I am. Of course. And I love what a great story. And it reminds me so much of that, that quote of if you want to give God a good laugh, tell him your life plans. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, because exactly. it's just these it, it's, it's interesting, actually. And I, I really do want to get to specifically for mental health for a second and stigma, because that's a big thing for me. But what's interesting is and, and you and I discussed this previously. But I, I went through my own traumas and uh, my own story. And what's fascinating is, 
people continue to tell me, like, sometimes I do really well, and I'd say, oh, you're turning a corner. And you hear that phrase so many times, you're turning a corner or you've turned a corner. But then it, I realized, especially in this very labyrinthian uh, uh, situation that I was in, that you turn a corner and there's another corner. And then there's, a, yeah. there's another corner and another corner. Yeah. Well, there's not right? the human, that, that's the human experience. That's life. Exactly. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. And I think that is, it's so magical, you know. Um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, I'm also kind of getting into this therapy world and to watch the breadth of human experience is just, it, I'm so in love with it all. The good, the bad, the ugly, the heights, the lows, the whole, the whole totality of it is just unbelievable to watch. So mm. much like, by the way, I will say, I think it's fascinating. I just realized this. I think it's definitely fascinating that you're out there reading Nietzsche and uh, perhaps Kierkegaard, I'm making that up, drinking, you know, nursing your tea on Hollywood Boulevard, watching people go by, and now you do that for a living. I do. I do. It's, you know, when I, I oftentimes, I often have a, um, uh, a lot of transitions into adulthood coming into my office. So a lot of parents, they, you know, they, they come, they come to me and they say, you have to help, you know, my kid is not applying himself. You know, he's doing this, he's doing that. And da, 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 and this is the trajectory we want him on. And he's not following, you know, the rules and the regulations. And, and it, I, I always go back to whenever I have these, these young people in my office, I always, I always say, my, the first question I ask is, well, what did you, what, what were you doing for fun? When you were 12, 13, what did you do for fun? When you were alone, when you had nothing to do, what did you do? What brought you joy? And that will always be where that individual should be guided in terms of career or in terms of, you know, yeah. But a lot of parents say, no, you know what? I'm a lawyer. My father was a lawyer. My child's going to be a lawyer. And sometimes the child does become a lawyer, but that child is miserable as an adult. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I think it's very important that we nurture who we really are. And that really is, if you don't know who you are, you do, you just have to know where to look. And that's, and that's, you know, where you were in those formative years, when you, those formative years where you had no, uh, you didn't have a, you didn't have a lot of life experience, but so you sort of innately go to what brings you joy, and that's, and that will always bring you joy. Those things always, they don't go away. Absolutely, that is. So I'm, 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 yeah. I'm a living testament to that as well. Um, and I think what's interesting too is that, as I mentioned, you know, kind of earlier, what this, the whole crux of this particular episode, I think, uh, I, I'd like it to be at least, is what the intersection between creativity and neurosciences and therapy and the brain, but also too, I do like how you have redefined creativity a, a little bit, because I think people think that creativity is, you know, picking up a guitar or picking up a paintbrush or picking up a pen. And that's not always the case. No, of course not. I mean, there are, I mean, we can, I don't want to get into details. I don't want to offend anybody, but I'm just going to say it anyway. But I please, I really don't want to offend anybody, okay? But when it comes to, for example, uh, you know, having your child take piano lessons, there are certain, there are certain methodologies. There are certain methods of learning an instrument that are, that's very left-brained. It's very logical. It has a lot to do with rhythm and math and nothing to do with creative flow. Um, and where was I going with this? My mind 
ADHD. So, right. So we're going to, yeah. So creativity, um, it's, it isn't all left. It isn't all right. It has to be true. Creativity comes from both sides of the brain. It comes from both hemispheres. Okay. So creative creativity, it draws on multiple interactive brain networks, not just the right hemisphere, which we always think of when we think of creativity and, um, feelings and emotions, but we also need that left hemisphere in order to keep us on track, in order to keep focus. So there are three, I think there are three interactive brain networks that are at play with creativity. The one, and this is sort of neuroscience, you know, textbook sort of um, wording, but I'll just, so I'll go into it. Number one is... Yeah. Okay. So brain networks, uh, the executive attention, uh, it integrates working. So working memory, uh, creates strategy. That part of the brain we always think of as, as left brain. It allows us to hold on to a lot of information, um, and keeps our minds in order and in focus. And the second, uh, interactive brain network is what we call a default mode of thought or an imagination thought. And that's where we, have a lot of inward focus, a lot of daydreaming, a lot of future goals, um, a lot of compassion comes from that, 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 that network, a lot of empathy. We get that through uh, meditation, uh, mindfulness, um, and also being in, that, in, a, in a theta uh, brainwave state, which you can get through meditation, but also it's that sweet spot state when you are just about to wake up in the morning you can almost go back to bed. You could go back to sleep. You know that there's that sweet spot and that, yeah, right. And so that theta state, that is where the most imagination can be mm, implemented into the brain. Remember in the eighties, people would buy these tapes of positive affirmations and they said to put it on at night. Do you remember those? Yeah. Yeah. They, they They weren't too far off. Because what happens is, is that when we are in that theta state, so either just waking up or just falling asleep, that is when we are, our minds, our brains are more susceptible to input, input that is inward input. So not details about, you know, mathematical equations or kinetic responses. This is about the inward, the default mode. This is where, you know, Paul McCartney wakes up and that's in that theta state. And, and he's like, I got, and he goes right to the, right. And he goes right to the piano. That is, that's it. That's that place. Yeah. That's that mindful place. We call it, sometimes we call it mindfulness. Sometimes we can call it prayer, right? When we're in that deep state of connectivity with the huh. universe or God or the self or, right, that's that's the sweet spot. And a lot of people don't tap into that ever. And those people tend to be people who are very reactive. But I can talk about that later. The third uh, brain network, it's like a salient network. So it's... Huh? It's sort of like the gatekeeper. It takes information and it decides, oh, is this is this good? Is this going to go into my attention and memory and strategy category, or is this information going to go into my imagination network? Um, so there's a lot going on, right? There's a lot of internal brain dialogue happening in creativity, but believe it or not, 
if if you're a creative, you'll, you you think everybody thinks that way. But the reality is, Jeff, is that no, not everybody, not everybody thinks that way. Hmm. So yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there's a lot of input, a lot of output, um, a lot of prefrontal cortex uh, stuff going on, um, being able to ask the questions, well, what if this happens? And what are the big questions in life? And having that foresight and needing to be in seeking. And interesting is that I, and I'm not saying, I mean, I'm just... I'm just a mom. A mom. I mean, I mean, and a scientist. I mean, but the the prefrontal cortex does not truly develop until you are in your early to mid twenties. Yep. Boys, boys happen to be a little later, um, yep. and that is that's why parents will come to me and say, "Marlo, oh my gosh, she took the car out. What was she thinking?" Doesn't she realize she could have killed somebody? She doesn't have her license. The roads are slippery. Well, the, and the answer is no, she actually wasn't thinking. She literally mm-hmm. wasn't thinking that way. She lacks the foresight because her prefrontal cortex, that executive functioning, has not yet developed fully. But, yep. um, yeah, I, I mean, just because I had those what-if big questions and foresight and, well, and that's so seeking, that drive of, of, of seeking, it didn't, did not mean I had a lot of foresight, let me tell you. What kind of 15-year-old has enough foresight to know? Maybe I shouldn't be walking around, you know, Hollywood Boulevard <laughs> at nighttime alone. I mean, there, there was zero foresight, right? So, but yeah. it, it, you know, it developed. Um, yeah, and so creativity, people who are very creative tend to have very, um, very developed uh, prefrontal cortex. But we also have to realize that with a strong prefrontal cortex comes a lot of foresight, and a lot of foresight can ensue a lot of fear, right? And right. fear, right, fear will limit us and will prevent us from being creative. So it's about balance, right? We've got the intellect, we've got the imagination. We've got the wrestling between true expression, but the intellectual part of our mind is the ego, and it wants to tell you about all the bad things that are happening and that could happen, and all the and 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 point out all your faults and you know the reasons why you shouldn't try something or you shouldn't go ahead and come up with this idea and all these the Debbie Downer that's that's the ego that's the intellect, and then you've got the creative, which is the subconscious. And it's just a constant battle. But I think that the creative individual allows themselves and has just been wired that way to be able to have a stronger subconscious that leads them. And with that uncertainty is not something to fear, but something to really explore. And the fear of the unknown isn't debilitating. And what is debilitating is the safe and the logical, right? And not taking those risks, whether it's music, musically, um, taking risks in music, taking risks in, you know, uh, gosh, in, in any artistry, actors take huge risks sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes they don't, right? Yeah. Um, right. Doesn't, you know, you can make, you can be a, 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 an actor, for example, or you could be a, you could be a vocalist and make, a ridiculous amount of money, but it doesn't mean you're creative. Right. Right. Which is a whole right. other 
topic, right? But yeah, so it's it's being very self-aware and not being reactive, tapping into that subconscious, tapping into the big questions. And mm-hmm. I think as parents and as educators, I think it's imperative for us to really start massaging those skills when children are young. And, you know, again, some people are just born that way, right? But I think we can also, we can also encourage that type of thinking, right? So, yeah, and that it particularly um, with certain disabilities, I don't like to use that word, but um, particularly uh, learning disabilities or um, autism spectrum disorders, you know, getting these individuals to think outside of the box, every day in some way is so important to their development. And um, yeah, I mean, everybody has the ability to be creative, but some people are a little bit naturally more creative than others. So it's like a small C creative and a big C creative, but they're right. both important. Right. Right. And I love, yeah. you know, I, have to, I have to back up for a second. My big aha moment so far, there have actually been very many, just incidentally, but one of my big aha moments was it was interesting when you were talking about the twilight part of the sleep when you wake up and the inspiration. Mm-hmm. The first thing that went to my mind was, holy shit, that's what Paul McCartney did with scrambled eggs slash yesterday. I and then was you going to use up. that analogy. Yeah. You did. You did. Exactly. <laughs> I thought that was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Exactly what happened. Yep. I've never understood that. And I will say this, too, as a matter of fact. It makes so much sense to me because I am like that. I wake up and I'm like, oh, my God, I can do this. Or right before I go to sleep. I say, you mm-hmm. know, I, I have a little, like many of us do, I would imagine, I have a little notepad. And I start, you know, scribbling things down. When it's those, exactly when those what you occur. should be doing. I say that to I say that all to everybody. I, I it's a, it's so important to have a little notebook with a pen. Don't turn your phone on. Don't do that. Yeah. You scribble it out. Trust me, you'll 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 understand your handwriting in the morning. Do it in the yeah. dark. It's very important. Yeah, I love that. I love that you do that. It's amazing. And it's, it's essentially being in tune, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's being what Keith Richards talked about, being a, a lightning rod for music or for art. That it's all kind of floating mm-hmm. out there anyway, up in the air. But if you're in tune with it, if whatever that necessarily means, if you're in tune with the universe or you're in tune with yourself or a combination of both or whatever mm-hmm. that is, once you're in tune, then you can start picking it out. And all you got to do is just write it down. That's right. And yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, it, but it takes a certain type of personality, too. So what we've noticed in looking at the world's most creative individuals, the Thomas Edison's, the, you know, and the mm-hmm. Bob Dylan's, the, is that <clears throat> these individuals, they're very inward focused, spend a lot of time alone, joyfully, but mm-hmm. they also... And I think you're going to get a kick out of this. Have great discontent with reality, <laughs> right? Hold on, that's um, right. And, and, that's right. That and there's a, you know there are a myriad of influences that will that will put us into that mindset of discontent with reality and humanity. And it could be trauma. It could be labeled as learning disabled and knowing that you have somehow deep down, you have so much more potential than people are telling you. And so that just, there's so, again, a myriad of influences that can contribute to having discontent with, with, with humanity. It doesn't mean that you always, that you every single day you have this great discontent, but 
typically you do, right? Uh-huh. Like your typical perspective is, you know, fill in the blank. Right. And that is something that the most creative individuals sort of carry with them. And I, we don't know why. And maybe it's about having that introspection, having that self-actualization more so than the average individual. Maybe it's seeing the world from eight different angles as opposed mm. to one directional. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we can – yeah, it, it, that that's fascinating. Amazing, because uh, I'm the same way. I mean, I've always been, I've, I've I'm, I've become much funnier in my life, but basically because of my traumas, because it kind of had to change my perspective on life. Um, uh-huh. Just me personally, I always I say this often. I say that, and and you may disagree or not, but I say that when you face trauma, you have one of two choices: you either adapt or you die. One hundred percent. Right. And for me, it's not necessarily survival or dying because survival sounds like, like just not dying. And I don't like that idea. So, and I say this all the time. I say, you know, dying is addiction, dying is suicide, dying is with dying with a calcified heart at the end of the day, just a dead heart, you know, corroded mm-hmm. or adaptation, which I love that whole Rogerian thing. But the interesting thing about adaptation is you have to adapt if you're going to move forward because your world got blown mm-hmm. out in the trauma. Right. Darwinism. Yeah, Darwinism. It's it's survival of the fittest. It's about those who can adapt win. Those who do not adapt to change, they don't. They perish. Right. Right. Yeah, that's that's extremely important to me. I got to go here, though, for a second, because what you wrote on your site, um, which, by the way, is positiveneurohealth.com, ladies and gentlemen, um, is what you wrote specifically about stigma and mental health was such an important thing for me. Because I had mentioned previously on an earlier when we kind of did the pre-call, um, I am bipolar and I have dealt with that many years of my life. And I, you know, I fully understand what that stigma is, specifically as it relates, honestly, to mania, because mania, nobody understands that thing. Or some of the more complex ones, OCD, I know, you know, ADHD is very oftentimes mis- or misunderstood and schizophrenia. Can you talk a little bit more about that stigma thing? Because what you wrote really had a lot of meaning to me. Well, I haven't I haven't not read that article that I wrote in forever in a day, so you might have to refresh <laughs> my memory. But I, I could shall. Up, but I, I, the I, reality I, is, is that I'm sure my perspective hasn't changed much. Um, so I, I think it's ridiculous that people scoff at being um, transparent and allowing ourselves to be vulnerable enough to share our human experience. Nobody goes through life unscathed. Nobody goes through life without falling into a depressive period or an anxiety uh, riddled, um, you know, a period of time. We all have seasons of our life where we carry a tremendous amount of grief. And if you haven't, you will get money back guaranteed, right? So we all have, we all struggle with mental health issues at some point or another in life and to dismiss that just because you maybe have not or maybe you just haven't acknowledged it in your life like I just think it's I think it's absolutely asinine for people to think that it is taboo I mean if you haven't experienced if you have not experienced a mental health breakdown or a mental health health issue, mm-hmm. just wait because you will. 
and talking about being vulnerable and allowing ourselves to communicate and share stories mm-hmm. is that there is such power, there is such strength in vulnerability. Look at what's happening now culturally, and I think it's a bittersweet fallout of COVID-19 is that it's forced us to be what? Introspective. It's forced mm-hmm. us to say, hey, guess what? I'm feeling this. Is anybody else feeling this? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's been better, bittersweet, and, and it's, uh, I, I think it's challenged the biases, and it's challenged the stigma. It's, the stigma is still there, particularly with certain cultures, certain demographics, certain generations. Um, mm-hmm. my, my parents, my father was born in 1930. My mother was born in 1940, and I grew up with the understanding that we do not talk about our failures. We do not talk about our struggles. That is private. We don't even talk to one another. We don't even talk to one another about our struggles. That was the, that I was raised from that generation. And so, you know, um, we still have that. And, you know, those generations probably won't change their perspective on mental health, but I, I certainly know that um, our generation um, and the, 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 the boomers and the Gen X and the millennials, and I think we're, we're in a new time where people are saying, you know what, it's okay that I have battled with addiction. It doesn't make me a liability for hiring me or for being a partner in my life just because I have you know, bipolar or I'm schizophrenic. There are so many amazing um, academics and individuals across the board who have schizophrenia and you don't know it. I mean, it's true. There's a spectrum for everything, right? There's a spectrum of anxiety. There's a spectrum of bipolar. There's a spectrum of, um, um, of schizophrenia and the list goes on and on. And, you know, some episodes are, you know, um, much lighter than others, but that's a human experience. And I, I said to you in our pre, um, our little briefing before this, uh, podcast, I said that, you know, bipolar, for example, is the human experience magnified. I love and, that. Right. And it shouldn't be feared. And, and, you know, I love that society is, you know, loosening up the, the restraints on, on the way we think about um, liability or employment with individuals who, you know, have struggled with certain mental health issues and, you know, and relationships and like people won't, you know, won't want to venture into a romantic relationship um, with an individual who has um, um, any sort of a mental health um, difference because they think it's somehow going to jeopardize the integrity of the relationship or maybe the outcome of what they, you know, were hoping for. Uh, Life will toss you so many angles and it's part of living. And I like that because of, I believe COVID and everyone being isolated for periods of time. And I think that just ignited a whole revolution. I really hope that's the case. I will say this actually, this is something that I kind of understood a little while ago uh, with my own illnesses and, and with other people's as well. 
is that, and this relates to the stigma thing, which is why I wanted to bring this up. I just, you're so dead on about everything you've said, in my opinion. But what I tell people oftentimes is that when someone has cancer and they have a lesion on their arm, you look at the lesion yeah. and you say, oh, you have cancer. I get it. I understand that. And you are mad at the disease and not the symptom, correct? But with mental illness, mental illness, the quote unquote lesion is inside the skull, trapped within a physical body, a skull, so you don't see it. So you get mad at the symptoms, i.e. you're lazy, you can't get out of bed, let's say if you have depression or whatever that looks like. Mm -hmm. You're angry at the symptom because you don't know there's a disease or you negate the disease. And it's almost that biology, that almost that wall that prevents people from really accepting what it truly is. So you get mad at the symptoms. And the problem with that is when you get mad at the symptoms, the person who is sick internalizes those, those, those resentments, those anger towards you. And they, you say, oh, it's me, not the symptom. And that's what's so hard about the stigma. Yeah, it is. Because if you can't see, if you can't see something, it, 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 I mean, it's such an abstract thought to even understand what you just said. Um, unless you can see it, it doesn't really exist. If I'm going to give another example, sort of in tune with, with, what, with what you're saying. Um, if you have an invisible disability, if you have, a, I hate the word disability, by the way. Sure. We really need to become difference. Let's say difference. A different D word. Uh, if you have an intellectual difference, if you have a biomedical difference, unless it's obvious, people do not give you the privilege um, of, uh, hmm, of being you. Um, if somebody has a, a genetic disability um, that is very obvious, right, like Down right. syndrome, Okay, like yeah. Down syndrome, and a child. Let's say a child with Down syndrome is in the grocery store with his with his with his, with his parent, and um, child has a meltdown. There's some sensory processing issues going on. Who knows? It doesn't matter. The behavior is there. That behavior is the behavior, right? And right. The, a person, an onlooker, will feel sorry for yeah. the individual, right? Yeah. But the but the but the meltdown, the the tantrum itself. So it, it's it's um. It's forgiven because, well, clearly they think it has to do with, and it probably doesn't have anything to do with a disability at all, but sometimes it does. Mm -hmm. If it's, mm -hmm. for example, a sensory processing issue or a communication um, a mishap. But if an individual has, for example, you know, autism, it, it, they look uh, neurotypical and they, you know, genetically typical, and that individual having a meltdown let's say, just like a bipolar individual having a, um, some kind of a psychotic episode with, with, with mania, something that is a little off-putting to the onlooker, mm -hmm. they're going to criticize your, the behavior without thinking about what the root is. What is the antecedent? We, ha we call it in behavioral sciences ABCs. Um, and it's the antecedent, the behavior, and the consequence. So the antecedent is, well, the, you know, what, what happened to cause the behavior? Well, the individual has a, you know, an, um, a neurotransmitter mishap. The neurochemicals are, you know, all over the place. Maybe their neurocircuitry is, is, is glitching, um, and the individual is exhibiting some kind of maladaptive behavior that's, unple mm -hmm. unple that's unpleasant for people to see. Um, that, so that's the antecedent is the disease or the brain lesion or the 
neurochemical imbalance. That's the antecedent. The behavior is the behavior. And the consequence, of course, is how people react to that. Yeah. And that and that shapes us and that gives that makes us not want to share our neurological differences. Right? When people yeah. when the consequence is always eye rolling or people abandoning you or telling you how insensitive you are in that moment, those are the things that make us not want to share our brain differences. That's why we keep hidden. Right. Yeah. Right. So if if so, it has to be the the C has to come first, and that's hard to do. So the C has to come first. So people in society in 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 Western culture, anyway, we need to understand. Oh, wait a minute. There's a reason. But there's always a reason. There's always a reason right? for everything, neurotypical or, or or otherwise. There's always a reason why we do what we do. There's always a reason why we might be upset with our child and and or partner and, and not really communicate our thought appropriately, right? Um, right? I mean, it could be a state of anxiety. It could be a state of depression. It can be a myriad of things. But the consequence, we we need to be a little more compassionate, and we also have to have a little more empathy and we also have to have a little more perspective um, and the only way that society will have those things is if they practice those things and I think we're starting to learn how to practice those things but I don't think humans will ever be able to really put those things into 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 practice fully unfortunately well, you are doing the work though so thank you so much for everything that you're doing. My God, what an amazing conversation. I want to close this with one little fun thing that just popped into my mind since you're, a, you're obviously, you and I share the same music taste of some genres at least. I would like to know, honest to God, this has nothing to do with anything we talked about, but I'd like to know what your favorite show you've ever seen is and why. Just real quick. Show, as in film or as in television? I'm talking music. Oh, music. Oh, my goodness. Concert. I think the oh, oh, Depeche Mode, Violator Ooh. Tour, 1992. Violator tour. Yeah. Wow. I believe Where? it was 92. At the, at the bowl? It was, uh, but I saw it at the Peony Coliseum because I was younger. Oh. Yeah. I, yeah. Okay, I'm going to go back for a second. My first show was a Black Celebration Tour. First show ever. Oh, that's a great. Oh, wow. Yes. Yeah, yeah, my yeah, that yeah, that was a great. That was the show of of my life. That was. Uh, <laughs> and I will tell was, you. Uh, like, side, uh, oh my On a side note, I have to tell you this real quickly before we close. I learned very early on that in order to get a woman into my good graces, all I need to have them do is sit next to me on the piano bench, and I will play them "Somebody" by the Pesh Mode. Done. Locked oh and my gosh, you had that on repeat on a cassette. Oh, that was my anthem. That was the anthem of my, of, 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 you know, of my desire in life. Uh, in fact, I, in fact, I just listened to it when I was, um, I was out of town, and I went on this sort of, um, you know, uh, like a, like I'm a, happy. you know, like a whirlwind, like I, like a, like a funnel on, on YouTube, and I, and I, oh, the heartbeat. Right. I love it. Oh my goodness. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Although, dramatic. In a very, in a very strange twist of irony, I actually dated a woman much later in life who dated him. 
previously. So I thought that was kind of odd. Yeah. Well, that, now that, I think that, that, you know, like, I think that's just, I'm like, privileged by association. (laughs) Full circle. All right. Well, listen, what an amazing conversation it is with you. I will forward you, uh, the person with with whom I spoke to earlier. Um, And I'd honestly like to keep in touch with you here and there. I think you're fantastic. And thank you so much for doing this. I'll send you the information when we get it, all right? Cannot wait. Okay, thanks so much. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. <laughs> the heartbeat. I have to listen to that again. I know. <laughs> All right. Take care. Bye, Cash. Okay, bye. Bye.